want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. What's up? Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for watching if you're on YouTube. Another recording here in Guangzhou, China for the intro. So slightly into the podcast studio. I've had this episode as well as a few others in the can for quite a while. In fact, recorded this at Oshkosh back in the summer and that was just when we we're beginning E3 Aviation. So I've been working on E3 Aviation for almost a year now and it's finally here. We're gonna be the title sponsors of Sun and Fun. It's gonna be an awesome week if you're an annual E3 member. You could access the VIP tent all week long. It's the only way to watch an air show. And that membership, I think, pays for itself with that alone. Monthly members get half off that VIP experience. And if you're not an E3 member, the tent's still open before and after the show, so you can swing through, check out some topic talks, meet and greets, and podcasts that we'll be recording there all week long. So it's going to be a great week, and I'm excited about it. As always, thanks to my Patreon supporters. Thank you if you've gone over to iTunes, Spotify, and now YouTube. Like, subscribe, and follow the appropriate means for each of those platforms. Again, those are kind of the three pillars for this podcast. Taking the six to nine seconds if you like this content, going there and doing it. A lot of exciting stuff coming down the pipe. Hope you're enjoying it. Hope you're doing well. And with all that being said, let's jump into the podcast. Tower to my stitches, release you, runway 610, So I'm excited. I'm here with my buddy Home, former Canadian Hornet demo pilot. A lot of Hornet time, a lot of GA flying, but AOPA here at Oshkosh, kind enough to open up their tent to us. I have this spot with a little bit of shade to have a little chat. So thanks for joining me pleasure and I mean what a great place to be to do a podcast yeah, it's perfect you flew in here right I flew yeah this is my fourth time flying to Oshkosh now how was that so I flew in in the Viper in 2018 but the airspace was sanitized I I didn't have to worry about anything I mean I saw the ADSB the picture which is not a picture I wanted to solve uh, you know in the Viper a lot of planes I mean you were in it in the thick of it so I, I left Sioux Falls and I came down here and uh, so I'm here supporting an airshow performer, so I have a different arrival. But I was on the radio, and the air traffic controllers here are absolutely phenomenal. It's insanity. What, yeah, oh yeah. It was, but I look, if you look at the ADSB, I look like Leroy Jenkins going in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going in straight at 240 knots, going to a, a, our arrival. But yeah, it was a train of like 100 airplanes back to back to back, and they're all following this Fisk arrival. and. It's impressive to uh, to hear these controllers because like the runway has like three separate dots and they're going on multiple runways and they're very directive. You know, keep the power on, keep moving, keep moving, next dot, next dot. And there's, so there's three colors on the uh, the north runway here. There's a, uh, a green, uh, an orange, and a white dot. And they tell you which dot to land and you better keep it tight because somebody is right behind you. 
this is not the place to like figure out like how to do things but i know there are a lot of pilots this might be their first trip into here and, and next year right when they go in might be the first time there's a published notum that's a booklet there's a lot of videos out there uh to kind of show and walk through because i was standing out of the fbo in the ramp and i was watching guys and they got the audio playing for air traffic control and it's just it's slammed but the turns these guys are making it was a perfect scenario too a light quartering tailwind everyone's overshooting racking it up i watched some scary stuff happen i mean this is a great thing about oshkosh as like we're sitting here real airplane pilot. Yeah. america um and watching these guys wrap it around uh was kind of terrifying like this is again you want to yeah. come in here prepared i and i you bring up a, a good point i think you cannot come here without doing your research first yeah. because i think like if i go to an airport i've never been at before I will go on the internet and watch a YouTube video. I went to a place called uh, Johnson Creek. Okay. It's at about 6,000 feet in the Idaho mountains. And here I'm coming in with the rocket. It looked like a sport car going to a derby. <laughs> and, uh, but it was, uh, you know, I did all the video research and then I looked at the procedures, how to get in. Oshkosh is the same. Don't, don't come to Oshkosh without first looking at how to get in here. Look at the no temps. And I would say it, it would probably be worth it to uh, to do a couple practice landing to land on a, a dedicated spot because most of the time when we land on an airport we have the entire runway you will not have the entire runway there will be three people all coming in in the same turn and they're all landing in different dots so you got to make sure that you you're able to land on the spot and unfortunately there's always a couple of incidents yep. people too hard on the brakes they go nose over so at the end of the day, though, that final portion, you still have to be, you know, doing your business, which is concentrate on the most critical phase of the flight, which is just land your airplane safely. It's a good point. I'm sure you guys said this in the Canadian Air Force, but it's like, don't think dumb dangers are different. And when you're coming up here, the different piece is obviously it's very busy, but people are used to rolling off uh, the perch, as you call it, you know, rolling the final turn, you know, beam the numbers or slightly past the numbers, and you're going to land you know, in the first 500,000 feet of the runway, whatever the performance is of your aircraft. But when it's like land on the dot, that's something you might be turning well before the end of the runway. Yeah, for and that's, sure. And that's a completely different sight picture. So when you said like, it probably warrants practicing a little bit. You can do a simulated, hey, there's a, an orange dot a thousand feet down the runway and I'm gonna base my final turn and everything I'm doing yeah. on that imaginary spot at your home airport. So when you come in here, the radios are screaming there's a million aircraft, you're not doing it for the first yeah, time. Yeah, and people are not used to, you know, your standard kind of downwind, base leg, final turn. They're, they're always used to that same kind of pattern. I mean, the guys here are very directive. They'll keep, you know, they'll keep talking to you on the radio, turning, 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 you know, add the power. So they're almost flying your airplane uh, uh, for you. But at the end of the day, it's like, if you're not used to this kind of pattern, like a final turn, which for us military, uh, military pilots, we're, we're used to that descending, turning profile. Most of the GA uh, pilots are not. Um, so they, I, I would say it's a, it's a good idea to practice before you come down to Oshkosh. Yeah, you, I mean, again, it goes back to the dumb dangers are different, really also habit patterns. Like the minute you break your habit pattern, that's when you're gonna miss something that could be critical and lead to a cash heart failure. But now you're coming up here and you're flying something different you're breaking the habit pattern of doing your rectangular pattern and rolling off the perch and you might not be used to it so again something like this definitely warrants practicing beforehand yeah. and some forethought i want to back up a little bit because your journey 
to get to here was a little bit longer than mine. So you started north of the wall. Can you kind of roll I it? Actually, yeah. Well, for me, so so I, I got a F1 rocket, and uh, my rocket, I, I just got this like gorgeous paint job done in uh, Santa Maria, California, a company called Aircraft. So I I flew down my airplane because I need touch up because when I do aerobatics, the whole belly gets all messy with oil okay. and and the spittings. So I wanted to get the the bottom all done glossy. So I I actually brought my airplane early June in Santa Maria. Okay. So for me, my journey was actually started about four weeks ago when I brought the airplane <laughs> to Santa Maria, flew back commercial, then I, I directed my uh, air show in Cold Lake. And as soon as my air show in Cold Lake was done, I literally drove to Edmonton, flew commercial to, uh, to uh, LA, and then from there, picked up the airplane from Santa Maria and flew it all the way down to uh, Oshkosh. I couldn't make it on Saturday because there was these big storms coming in. Yeah. So yeah, those are those are the massive. They look pretty be, big. Yeah, you did not want to be camping here on Saturday. No, it was like 50 knots wind, so I stopped overnight yeah, in uh, Sioux Falls, and it was great overnight. Like, and uh, talk about the uh, the. Uh, small world i land in a place called rawlings i didn't even plan to land in rawlings i was going to go to um, uh, evanston okay. just uh, around the hill air force base but i'm looking i got 40 knots tailwind i'm like i can stretch it one more one more leg the old ford tri-motor and that tri-motor <laughs> is so loud and i like that it's like cor cor corrugated uh, yeah. metal and it still flies it's amazing. So, it's amazing. So I I end up stretching my uh, my landing to uh, to a little bit further, maybe 150 miles away, Rawlings. Okay. I land there and I meet these uh, these folks at the airport, and oddly enough, we had we knew the same people. We had supper together, and then we ended up having to both divert to uh, Sioux Falls. But their plane is so slow. I said, "You guys go. It's a Cessna 170." I said, "You go. I'll I'll sort the hotel. I'll sort the Uber." And uh, and then I flew right past them, and I waited for an hour and a half again for them. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was. I mean, that was the journey going going to Oshkosh for me. That's a quote. Is it a pain doing the customs process? I know nothing about it. Coming from Canada, going into America. Yeah. So as military guys, it's pretty easy for us. Like we yeah. go to usually right. a big airport, they just show up, and you don't have this uh, this convoluted process. Yeah. But when you uh, when you go to Canada, it's very easy. Canada, you just call customs. It's like one triple eight can pass. You tell them your uh, your you report your arrival. But going to the states, you have to fill up this EAPIS. So if you're not used to it, so you got to go online, fill up all your information, your pilot information, where you're taking off, where you're landing. You have to be within half an hour. And oh, really? You fill that up all online, and once that's filled, you still have to call the customs office because you can't you know show up without. Uh, previous uh, uh, call and as soon as you get there then you go through the customs so there's a uh, a notice of of arrival and then there's a notice of departure because they want to know when you're leaving the country so EAPIS is more of an American thing so that you know either from Canada into US or or Mexico into the US and then Mexicans have their uh, uh, their own process too but Canada actually quite simple is it so, and you obviously had a lengthy stay, or at least your plane had 
I would say a lengthy stay. Yeah. Was there any additional hurdles getting the maintenance or getting the paint done here and like going back and forth or is that? No, I mean, it, I mean, typically if you get work done in the States, you're going to have to pay tax when you go back to Canada. Uh, but, uh, but no, no big difference. And if you had purchased like, you know, a, a bottle of whiskey or something. So you have to pay, yeah, to, uh, pay taxes on the, the paint? Pay yeah. Paint? So when you, when you go across Canada, back in Canada, you have to pay tax. This was a, a, a repair. There was no cost associated with it. Okay. So there was no taxes. Yeah. Interesting. All right. I want to back up to where it all began. What got you interested in flying in the first place? I mean, it sounds cheesy, but Top Gun was. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so I'm I'm hoping this Top Gun's going to motivate a bunch of young aviators to to pursue it. But I mean, I was like 12 years old when I first saw Top Gun in 1986, and uh, it just got me hooked. So I I was interested in aviation before that, and uh, I know my parents never thought I was going to be a pilot just because I I had motion sickness. I would always get yeah. sick in the airplane. Yeah. But I was one of those kids, like I would get sick, close the bag and put it aside and continue flying. And it's a little bit like conditioning, you know, you yeah. don't go, go and run, run a marathon, but if, if, you, uh, if you condition yourself and you work for it, you'll get over it. So yeah. anyway, that's how for me it started. In Canada, we have this thing called the Air Cadets. Okay. So uh, it's a paramilitary kind of organization that, that promotes uh, leadership and uh, uh, you know, good skills, uh, and then and you get involved into aviation at a very young age. Is that like high school or is that college level? Uh, no, no, it's it's high school. Okay. It's it's between twelve years old to seventeen years old. Okay. Uh, I think you guys have a similar program. Silver Patrol, which yeah, I did I did that. So it's kind of yeah. And Air then they paid for my gliders license. Uh, so nice. basically, I did a summer camp where I learned how to all the academics. You know the the meteorology, regulation, aerodynamics, and but you're learning that at 15 years old, and uh, you're doing that at summer camp. And the next camp I did was uh, my glider's license. Okay. Uh, and then after that, I went to a flying college and, and just pursue that with the military and so on. So doing the flying, so you went to a flying college. Yeah. Did you do military? Like we have reserve officer training core, the ROTC. So it's Is similar it? to, okay. to that. So I started the flying college on my third year. They, they reached out to us and they go, hey, we're going to pay your third year. And uh, you guys just come into the military after that. So I, I basically roll right from the, the civilian flying college into the military. And I, I went straight on to the tutor, which is what the uh, Canadian Forces Snowbirds fly. Yeah, which FOMO... Uh, Snowbird, good friend. Yeah, uh, I flew with him and the Snowbirds and got flying the Tudor, which my funny story with that is like puts me in the jet. We're taxing out, and as you know, the nine jets are rolling onto the runway. He's like, "All right, you got the takeoff." And I was like, "I don't know what I'm looking at here," you know. But yeah. Ergonomics are slightly dated, just like the T37 we had. Again, things have changed in advance. And the power is not the same. No, nope, I mean you slammed the power. Even my rocket has more, you know. Uh, thrust on takeoff than that jet. That's got. I mean, it's got to be a heavy jet. Well, it's it's only twenty seven hundred pounds of thrust. So I remember my buddy uh, Crank. He 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 came from the Hornet, pushes the throttle, and he aborts the, the, the takeoff. He goes like thrust loss on takeoff, and the guy goes, "You got to give the engine a chance." You Come know? on, man. It's yeah, like, <laughs> that's what the T thirty seven. I only I rode in it once, but they fly the final you know, final final approach, final turn with the boards out. Yeah, just to keep because the engine spool time is yeah. so slow. So you can th yeah, throw the boards in and then get a little bit of extra. Well, the F-86, I flew during the air show season. I flew a lot with uh, the F-86 okay. as a heritage flying. 
and they would always fly with the boards out against the power just to keep on a higher regime and then that way it, I mean you're not going to get as much uh, thrust on a quick quick uh, reaction than just pushing the boards back in and it'll, it'll push you forward. Yeah, maybe just give you a little bit extra. Yeah. So did you know in uh, college or like when they, when they came and said, hey, you guys are going to go in the Air Force, did you know you're going to be a pilot or how does that process work in Canada? So, yeah, so you go through the, uh, rec the uh, recruiting system and then when you go through the, uh, the pilot, actually it's air crew selection. On the air crew selection, you do uh, three, three days worth of physical, you know, uh, medical testing and, uh, and just some, some random testing, which for us didn't seem um, relevant at the right, time, but right. there's, uh, there's a bunch of testing they did, mathematic testing and, and, uh, and others. And at the end of the uh, air crew selection, they'll tell you, hey, you've been accepted for uh, navigator or pilot. Ideally, you just want to be accepted for pilot, you know. Right. I was accepted for both navigator and pilot, but my, my plan was only to accept pilot for sure. Yeah, so ours, it may be slightly different because I did, you know, four years of ROTC, your junior year, they're taking all, like, your commander's ranking, which is subjective based upon, like, what they think of you and your leadership ability. You do the random battery of tests, physical, GPA, all that goes into it, and then you can put, like, pilot, navigator, I think it's CISO now is the official term for it. I'm probably getting that wrong, but, you know, they can get mad at me. Uh, ABM, Air Battle Manager, et cetera, but you pick them and say, yeah, like I just said, I just want to be a pilot and I'm going to take, if I'm not a pilot, I'm not doing anything exactly. else. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, I, I just, I can't do it. And again, it's always good to have a plan B, but if you have a plan B, that means plan A is not going to work. So My, my plan B is if the military wasn't going to take me as a pilot, I was still going to be a pilot in the civilian, so. Yeah, it, 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 obviously it worked out. So you did tutor, did you have the Hawk? No, so the the two were the tutor was before the Hawk. Yeah. So right now we have the the Harvard, which you guys call yeah. the Texan two. Uh, so the Harvard two, Texan two, the same aircraft, and then you move on to the Hawk if you go to the fighter leading training, and then you'll go on to the F eighteen. Otherwise, you do the Harvard Texan two, and then you go on to the community that you're being selected, so either helicopter or multi engine. So when I went through training for me. Uh, we were getting rid of the uh, F-5, which is similar to your T-38. Right. So there was a huge backlog of pilots. And my timing, you know how it is. It's all about timing where you go through training. Right place, right time. So my timing was that the uh, Canadian Forces was getting rid of the Kiowa, which was the OH-58, yep. moving to the Griffin, which is like a, a brand new twin Huey. So we went from a single-seat helicopter to a two-seat helicopter, Overnight, we need twice the amount of helicopter pot. So I, I did it very well on training, but it's like still, nope, you're going to helicopter. So it was great, but that was not where I wanted to be. But I still had a blast deploying, you know, in Kosovo, Haiti, and and the nice part is uh, you're flying tactical helicopters, so your skids don't go much higher than 15 feet. So yeah, that speed's relative based on altitude. Absolutely, yeah. I can tell you that. That's for sure. How long did you do that? I flew helicopters for about 10 years, and I got about 3,000 hours flying uh, OH-58, the Kiowa, Twin Ueys, and uh, Griffins. And then when did you transition to the Hornet? Uh, so in, 2000, in 2001, actually, I got out of the military. I uh, continued flying as a reservist uh, on the uh, Griffin. And then in 2004, I came back in 
wife and I discussed it, and it's like, well, we've been offered a, a spot in Musha to go teach on the Texan, yeah. the Harvard. So I went there. I taught for about 14 months, and they offered me to go Hornet. So from there, it was like, it seems like everything was being offered like on a silver platter. It was just right time, right place. You know, because usually you're kind of like stovepipe. Like in our airports, you get into the Gila world, like the chance of it, any any escape velocity of that world is very Yeah, rare. it's the same for us. It It's very, very rare that you're going to go from cross-community, that you're going to go from a helicopter to multi or, or, or multi to jets. Right. So they, they tend to, I mean, they spend so much money on your training. Right. The last thing you want to do is give that training away to another unit or another community. So again, it was like the right time, right place. The fighter force was looking for good candidates. And I, I was doing very well on, on, uh, as an instructor in Musha. So they offered me the position. So I went on the Hawk. I was supposed to teach on the Hawk. They go like, no, you're, you know, we're offering you direct to the, uh, the Hornet. And then from there on, I, I went to fly the Hornet, that 410 squadron uh, in Cold Lake, Alberta. And went to 409 squadron on uh, what we call our gun squadron, so the, uh, the, uh, the operational squadron. Became the demo pilot and went to 410 Squadron to teach again. I've been in the Hornet now since uh, 07. Man, that's a lot of Hornet time. That's a lot of slow time. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we love fighting yeah. slow. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. I, the helicopter piece, honestly, I didn't know that about you. I just found that out. It's, uh, you know, the, the thing is, while you're doing it, I'm, I, was, I was upset. If, if one thing yeah. that uh, I, I could tell people is enjoy the journey. Yeah. And, and perhaps for me, I didn't enjoy that journey as much. I look back and the, some of the greatest stories I have in my career were some of the shittiest time that I've had. Like the location, like, cause you, all the locations oh, you go to, you're like, I mean, I'm in Kosovo suck. in the tent. There's, there's like mouse and rats going around. We're eating, eating, you know, shitty British food and. And then, but we're like, I got my, my little tin can of, yeah. of a coffee cup and I'm looking around and go like, we're in Pristina and you can see all these airplanes coming in because like, they're still bombing uh, yeah. Kosovo. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this picture. I didn't enjoy it at the time. And I, but I look back at some of the, the most fond memories I have. It's tough to have that perspective when you're down in the weeds, you know, getting to that 50,000 foot view. Like, yeah. unfortunately, it's usually just time, unless you're just super mature, which I'm not like to have that foresight to know, like, hey, it's because we're, when you're in the trenches, like that sucks. The British chow hall, like I can say Kandahar, love, love the Brits, but the British, <laughs> chow, food. The British chow hall is the closest one to me. And so I ate there so much, like, I never want to have curry again. Ever. Like, it was good, but I was like, I had so much curry in my life. And that six-month deployment, I was like, never again. You know? Yeah. What, uh, like, when you are in Kosovo, what kind of operations were you guys doing there? Uh, so a lot of it was uh, either escort or uh, troop transport. And we did some assault uh, because there was a lot of weapon cash that was being hidden. Yeah. So I remember leading a, a four-ship into uh, a weapon cache. And uh, it was basically a troop insert us getting uh, out as quick as we can so they can assault the house and get all the weapons. So you remember in, in Kosovo, the, it, so initially there was cleansing going on with the Serbians right. and the Albanians that were living in Kosovo. Kosovo was a land that was contested between Albania and, and Serbia. 
So initially when Serbia took it over, there was cleansing going on. But when we came in, then it was reverse cleansing. It was the Albanians moving in back to their, you know, to that piece of land. And it's a gorgeous piece of land, but man, there was a lot of stuff that we saw there that was, uh, that was sad to see a lot of So we had to report any of the disturbed earth. And for us, yeah. I remember this one event. Um, I mean, it, it seems trivial to us because you like you say you got that 50,000 foot look for me it was more like 500 foot look <laughs> which is still uh, like in the Bozo screen <laughs> exactly uh, but they they would ask us to report anything that was unusual so if you saw some brand new disturbed earth you had to mark the location reported because that usually matched like a massive grave site so close to uh, to where our camp was I saw what looked like that a big tire but I was actually two of them, and they were like in a, in a very oddly, like perfectly aligned set of tires. And they were all, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 feet apart. And uh, so anyway, um, I reported it. And, uh, and then it became a, uh, a restricted area that we couldn't fly over top of it. And a few days later, when I overflew and we had the forensic team that was there, it turned out to be an actual bus. I hate to say it, but bus that would fill with uh, uh, men and uh, young adults. And basically they killed everybody and they took the bus and they pushed the bus over the, uh, the cliff. And they just pushed dirt to try to hide it. And for me, what I saw was just like two sets of tires. Like it was a bus upside down, you saw those tires That's popping. right. It was through, on the cliff, you could see the two tires, but there was like all the dirt they had piled over. Right. So for me, as, a, as an aviator, the only thing I saw is really two tires. Right. But for the Army guy that had to actually go and, and look what I had just reported, they saw something vastly different. Yeah, absolutely. It's different. I mean, we could go into that whole aspect. Um, you know, being, being an altitude, I think you're kind of like you're there and you're connected, but you're also detached because you're either... Yeah. You know, you have altitude and distance between you and what's happening there, and it's it's very different. And obviously, something happening at this range is very personal uh, with bullets flying. I mean, everything we look at yeah. for us on the fighters, we I mean, we are a striker, we're a striker on the Hornet also. So when we do close air support, we we see the impact of our bombs, but it's through a TV screens. Right. The guys on the ground see the impact very differently. I need to. There's a study, and they did. I need to find this study because I was talking to a buddy about it. But there's something psychological, in, even for a sniper, looking through a scope or looking through an MFD and a targeting pod, where the brain is able to detach what is happening a little bit better. I mean, it's able to detach what's happening versus yeah, for like, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's and there's obviously less factors that are going in. How? Uh, and, yeah, one, this is something that doesn't really get talked about that much. It's kind of lost in history, but. Yeah. Little tri-motor again. That this, sound of freedom. Yeah, right? There's uh, this heinous stuff happens all the time. Yeah. Obviously, you're a witness to it. How often were you guys finding stuff like that or things like that popping up on that deployment? You mean like uh, like extreme kind of situation like or, the bus or things yeah, like something, that? Yeah, something like that. Like you said, though, like for us as aviators, we're somewhat um, maybe disconnected. We don't have that same kind of relationship to the impact of, of what our uh, ordinance are doing or, or what you see on the ground. Um, and, and plus, we've been somewhat 
desensitize a bit with all the video games out there. Like, yeah. you're already looking through the screen. You know, you're playing all these video games. Um, but the guys on the ground, they, they just don't get, like, just a, a picture, but they get the smell, they get the, the, uh, the visual uh, impacts. They're, they're directly associated some, to, to some of the ordinance that we drop, you know. So I, I would say we have an, a very, very different, imp I guess, feeling at the end of it. Yeah, it's, it's weird because obviously in very dynamic situations where you know lives are on the line and lives are being lost while you're there for 45 minutes or an hour or four hours while you're supporting it, you know, at the end of the day, you are turning and you're flying, you know, a couple hundred miles home. Yeah. And while you do carry that, you are detached from it because it's... Yeah, and it, you know, distance. it's... So you talk about detachment. You you have to, as you know, for us, we, you have to detach yourself to what is on the ground or what is in the air. For, for instance, one of the you know since 9/11, one of our critical pieces that we have in North America is the defense of of both our countries. So, as a as a NORAD pilot, like a, an alert pilot, one of the things that you may be called upon to do is shoot down an airliner that may have a lot of people in it. But there is a, a greater good to the, to the actual mission. Uh, it's no different than when you look at World War II, where sometimes they had to maybe take down a bridge, and there may be some casualty in there that you don't want on that bridge. But if you don't take down the bridge, then there's a much greater casualty result at the end. So I don't know. It's, uh, we, we're, we're trained from the get-go as fighter pilots to to try to disconnect yourself from from the emotional part of it and you know you got to do the mission if you're if you're being ordered to do the mission and it's not like we don't we, we still do the sanity check hey you know there is that that's coming in into the target area but at the end of the day if if the if the order is given you know you're you're to do what you're being told to do and i think you know western air forces this is something that pride ourselves on. There are a lot of inefficiencies in our Air Force. I've talked about that before, but where it comes down to it with a mission commander or a flight lead, that you know, 25 to 35 year old uh, guy or gal who's leading an eight ship, a 60 ship, whatever it might be, to go take the objective, escort, whatever it might be. The mission is outlined. The ROEs should be clear. Um, and they're given the authority to make very dynamic and consequential decisions at a very young age. And they might have to answer for it at the end, but it's that centralized command or centralized control, or centralized command, decentralized control, yeah. essentially passing the authority down to the person at the tactical level to make those decisions because they're in there in the fight, vice having to ask mom or dad for permission to do everything. And and for those who know flying against like red air that we do train, like it's very, when you're doing an adversary role, if we're replicating some of our peer or near peer threats that we might yeah. or might not consider adversarial, we replicate those tactics, which is very tight control. So telling you as a bad guy, having your bad guy controller turn left, turn right, 15 degrees, climb, look one o'clock high, it's very controlled versus what we're used to. We have our tactics, we have our standards, and we go out there and execute and expect to make smart decisions yep. based on the information we have available to us. So I agree. Yeah, a little bit different. 
So Kosovo, you come back, and then how long is it before you get out of the Canadian Air Force? Well, I, so I wanted to go fixed wing. So I, I got out, went to fly uh, corporately for about uh, two and a half years. And during that time, like literally two weeks after I got out, one of my previous commanding officer calls me. He goes, hey, you want to come back in? I got your, your way to come back in through fixed wing. And I told myself, you know what, I, I've already kind of... Uh, uh, made that decision it took me six months because pilots in Canada you got to give it six months notice you can't get out so that slows down your process to get out and get a job uh, but I, I gave it a shot in civilian it was awesome I had I flew with some of the the best pilot I flew in my career like great communicators and great skills and uh, but when they came back and they offered it to me uh, multiple times eventually I talked to my wife I'm like hey I can only fly inverted for so long yeah. And let's go and do it while I'm still young, and and then the rest is history. So I don't regret the move, but I don't regret the past either. Was it? This was 2000. Uh, 2004 is when I did the the move, but I got out in 2001. Okay, because I was wondering we can talk some like recruiting and pieces as far as like the need. Obviously, there was a need at the time for pilots. 9/11, I imagine, drove that need for more guys in green bags, flying jets and, and teaching, or was it something yeah, else? Yeah, the, the, the problem for us in Canada is that the uh, getting the people in the door is not the issue, is getting people through the door and through the entire uh, train of training. So we can train as fast as we can, but the operational community just cannot absorb it. So the, the gun squadron cannot combat train a brand new wingman. And then the, the operational uh, training unit cannot train, uh, you know, the, what's coming in. So there's, you know, there's only so much that you can, that you can push through that fire hose. Um, so if at the end of the day you got a, a one-inch hose at the end, that's the only thing that's going to come out of it. It doesn't matter how much you push through. You're going to lose something. That's something that, you know, the U.S. Air Force is struggling. They're trying to figure out better ways to more efficiently get people to the in desired end state, leveraging technology. At some point, like you got to get them in the jet, you got to get air up underneath them. You can only cut so much. The the interesting piece to see is how they're managing that and what will become of it. Because again, it's like how long does it take to make a ten year fighter pilot? Ten years. Well, yeah. I, ten years, but then you you really have a minimum of about five six years before that, which is going through the uh, the training system so and th that's the issue is when you lose a 10-year uh, fighter pilot you're losing uh, you know a great asset that's cost you multiple millions of dollars so it's not like you can replace that 10-year fighter pilot with a one-year right. brand new wingman it's apples and oranges apples yeah. and rocks like it, it doesn't even compare and that's something that our Air Force is definitely struggling with figuring out how to it's not just a numbers game of like, hey, we have this many fighter pilots on the books. It's one thing you mentioned is like, I hope Top Gun makes people want to be fighter pilots because that is one thing that while people still want to do it, surprisingly, that's not, that's not the big drive or push. Like there have been multiple times over the last few years where there have been drives to want to get people to want to go be pilots out of the Air Force Academy or once they're in pilot training to want to be fighter pilots because it's just one of those things that like Cultures change, generations change, and so we needed a Top Gun, I think, to hopefully inspire. Yeah, and like plus, 
I mean, Top Gun, at least they put Hornets. Can you imagine if they put Vipers? I, I mean, mean Iron been, Eagle. It would have been too much for people to handle, <laughs> so we had to tame it down a little bit with Hornets. Exactly. What did you think of Top Gun? I, I absolutely loved it. I I thought the the fight scene, you know, like when they're going down the roller, okay, they're maybe a little bit too close in the canopy, but some of the stuff was actually really well done. And I, for for us operators, when I hear dead eye and I'm here laser, actually they used a, a proper laser code. I'm like, man, they actually went all out. I, I thought it was really well done. And uh, my wife went to see it uh, just actually a couple of days ago, the second time, and she still loved it. It's one of those movies that you hear people going back seeing a second time, which I haven't heard. I think you have, see things that you've missed on the first one. I knew because we took Jack to go watch it the first time, and I says like, "Hey, you know, you're gonna hear some bad words. Like, we're not gonna use those." But when we left, he's like, "What'd you think?" He's like, "It was awesome." I was like, "What do you want to do?" And he grew up. He's like, "I'm gonna be a fighter pilot." I was like, "Well, why?" He goes, "So people can shoot at me, I can say bad words." I was like, "Well, yeah. you know, like we might have missed the point here, but it's just such a cool. I thought they did a great job as well. There's obviously." You got to Hollywood it a little bit here and yeah. there, but Paco and I broke down the GBU-24 attack. Like, the fact of what they were doing. Now, you might have solved that problem with some other things first. You mean when they did the pop attack? Did the pop and yeah. the dive. I didn't actually, I've never dropped a GBU-24. Uh, I've dropped a lot of GBU-12s, but the GBU-24. Plus, you do it all. Because for us, as, as uh, Hornet or Viper drivers, we don't have a, yeah. a, a, a rear seater. So it's like you drop, you lays, you do it, yeah, do you it put all. the designation, everything together. They did it good. He was saying that the GBU 24 logic on that dive glide, it actually programs it that it's gonna, if you release and you go dead eye, yeah. uh, or you're not calling goalie, it's gonna take that logic. Oh, I'm at a 24 degree dive and it's gonna follow that path yeah. and go hit. So you're like, man, we man. do uh, We do in Canada some of those attacks where one person will dive the attack and one person will be a hawk in the fight lazing. Yeah. And it's just so we can give the ordinance a little bit more energy. Because otherwise, if you just do a level delivery, you know, the bomb's not going to have as much of an angle uh, on the impact. That's what a lot of our GBU-12 attacks we did yeah. in Iraq and Syria. Is, you know, it's going to be a shooter, cover, and the guy who's hanging out is going to be there for the goalie call and yeah. be able to be the, save the day when you gimbal your laser, gimbal your target pod, or you lose it for some yeah, reason. Exactly. Yeah, you can get back there. Or he's orbiting, yeah, and you can get back there and give it the bomb as much smash as possible before you let go and they lays it in for you, and then you just get to be the hero. Yeah. Yeah, it's not bad. So all the Hornet time. So let's jump Hornet demo. So you transition the Hornet, which I know is awesome. You go to the combat squadron. Yeah. Was it just a normal rotation through that? Just combat? a normal tour on squadron, yeah. Are you? Do you guys sit alert through there, or are you doing like, like we do, like go to red flag? Maybe yeah, we'll, we'll do exercise throughout the, the, your tour. Uh, but one of our primary fo focus in Canada, we have two fighter bases in Canada. We have one in, in Cold Lake out west, which is in Alberta, and we have one in uh, Quebec, Bagotville. Um, but we have 24-hour alert facility there. You sleep, you eat, yeah. and uh, you live there. Have you had to do an alert? Oh, I many times had to be a scramble up north, and you do this long mission, eight hours, because we go all the way to Inuvik which would be like, you know, somewhere east of Elmendorf. So you'll go all the way north, and then suddenly you're waiting for, you know, the potential target to come out and then come back. So. I imagine, yeah, up there, I mean, that's a long hike. I didn't realize it because obviously the, the guys up there in Alaska, they're finding, you know, a couple of our Russian friends that come zipping across the way. Yeah. Doing that, that's what you're going to go do. But any civilian, like, airline, 
I guess, a GA community? Is there anything you're having to worry about? Are you guys ever scrambling on those up there? Or? Uh, not so much up there for a civilian, uh, but during the Vancouver Olympics, for instance, yeah. anytime you have a, a, a restricted area that, that's being enforced, a G7 would be one of them. Yeah. The Vancouver Olympics, I had to intercept a, an ATR-42. Uh, and I, I'm quite familiar with the, uh, you know, the, the GA world. Uh, but, but when you're being told to commit, I mean, we're like a pit bull at that point. Yeah. Like, gate, we're going. And suddenly as I'm doing my final turn, I realize, oh, there's two propellers on this thing. And I'm pulling back as far as I can on the stick idle. And, and oh, I'm, it could not have been more timely. It arrived right <laughs> on the wing. Um, but, yeah, we'll do some intercept. Uh, during that, the Vancouver Olympics, we're a little bit more sensitive. Uh, that was in 2010. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that that everything was safe. So yeah, we were patrolling the skies for 24 hours a day. So you'd go up, do an eight eight hour patrol over Vancouver, and then as soon as you know, we'd do a handoff. Another crew would go for another eight hours. And the sniper part was actually pretty good to watch these ski yeah, jumps. Yeah, that's that's awesome to be able to do that. I would say I actually rejoined on a tanker in Iraq. I didn't realize Hornets were the receiver before me. And so, I mean, I'm going in there screaming at like 450, you know, and then I was like, oh, no. I don't know. It's like 280 you guys refuel at, right? Uh, we will refuel, right? The probe has to come out below 300. And as soon as you're, uh, you're below 300, the probe is out, we can go up to 400. But the probe transition cannot be uh, above 300. Okay. We'll refuel. You know, the KC-135, we typically will be somewhere around 300, 310 okay, knots. These guys, then, these guys were slow because I was like, I had nothing but regrets as I was approaching this, realizing there were hornets on the wing. It was at night, you know. And like you got the easy job because you get probe, we probe. So we are the one to fight for the basket. And for us, typically, you know, like, I don't know what it is, these guys. I think it's the navigators that are making the job be harder for the hornet drivers. But uh, they'll put a KC-10 in beautiful, broken skies. They'll put a Herc maybe as it gets dark, and then they'll put the KC-135 at night in the soup. Without fail, I can't tell you how many times I've been refueling, and you can see the tanker's tail out of the clouds, and you're in the weather. You know, know, you're like, can we just climb just 10 feet? 10 yeah. feet. Like, I'm spatial deed right now. I have no idea which way's up. Like, this is miserable. How did you find the one cloud in the sky? Every time, like, without fail. I know. The, uh, the Airbus tanker that we have in Canada is actually... It it uh, it can give you some uh, visual illusion because there's a there's a, a fairly significant dihedral. Okay. So if you're on the right wing, you always feel that you're tilted to the left, and if you're on the left wing, you feel you're tilted to the right because of the, the you know you're you're visually on the on the on the hose, but you're looking at this wing going like this. So eventually, your head kind of start thinking that's the horizon. I you know for me, if I'm on the boom in the weather, I instantaneously i think i'm in 90 degrees of bank it's like the most miserable feeling and then when i you know as you get more experience too like when you're kind of in that soup hanging out on the wing you know as you're just cruising along in the tanker um i've heard stories of guys doing barrel rolls around the tanker just disoriented and as i got enough experience you start realizing i, I think we're turning but i realize that it's me rising up on the wing yeah looking down, but it gives a perception that you're in this bank. So you have to like force yourself down. Oh, and you it's fight invisible. it. You it's fight invisible. for the next little bit. You're looking at the HUD. We have a standby uh, attitude indicator. We're looking at you just trying to re-cage your, your new horizon, but it's, it, you got to fight it. It's brutal. The worst actually, I think is when I got used to where I was like, I can just deal being miserable, but then it's like when I 
I would look at the HUD like recage and it wouldn't work. But so that when I looked at the HUD, it just made it worse knowing that I'm straight and level, but I feel like crazy. Again, these are the things that yeah, most people don't, don't realize. And it's just nope. like, I am miserable right now. But if we could climb a thousand feet, we'd be in clear air and my exactly. life would be so much better. But it won't do it. No. Intercepting slow aircraft. What like an air to air configuration on the Hornet? What's a nice, happy, slow speed? Because I can tell you. Uh, so, so typically for us in the in a Q jet, the alert jet has got three tanks. Oh. So you're pretty hogged up. Yeah. And so we got three missile, two tanks. Uh, sorry, three tanks, and then we also have a sniper pod. So flying anything below like that 240 knots, 220 knots, you you have to start thinking about putting the flaps. Uh, I mean, the Hornet can fly very slow, but yep. we also have tactics that if we have a slow mover, we'll have a, a tactic that, you know, we'll loiter around that target. Yeah, I had Boat uh, earlier, we had a conversation, he, he works for NORAD, we talked about intercepting, but, you know, I never did any alert, I flew slow in the demo, and I know you're going to laugh at flying slow in the demo, but, you know, like 115 was kind of the, the, the slow end. We can do alt flaps. In the Viper because it's a flapper on and it does it automatically, but obviously it doesn't like it doesn't like flying slow and obviously there are tactics out there to to deal with slow aircraft which most GA are yeah. well below a fighter speed so yeah that's interesting your demo time did you do one year doing demo yeah we only do one year in Canada yeah. almost did second year but yeah only one year how was that it was great you know part of it too is because we had. I had an amazing relationship with the US uh, A-10 demo team. So, I mean, it started with uh, Rifle. Rifle was the demo guy. Yeah. I don't know if you know Rifle, yeah, but Rifle he, uh, really so he, he played a prank on us and that's how it started the, the whole air show season. I had about half my shows with, was with the A-10 demo team and ground crew and pilots got along extremely well. And we're just, it was in uh, Columbia, Missouri and we're just holding because they were going to do a fly pass of all the fast aircraft to slow, so we were going to be the first ones to go in. And I am looking, I'm like, oh, there's, there's a rifle. He was with uh, Teflon. I don't okay, know, yeah, you know, Teflon. well, Teflon's here. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's so right. Yeah, Teflon, first day, yeah. Teflon and rifle, they're just loitering around. I'm like, okay, there's, there's rifle and Teflon. There they are again. After the, the third or fourth loop, I'm like, where are they? And suddenly I look in the mirror and both of them were like right behind within about four or five hundred feet of the Hornet in the trail, you know, calling the guns. Yeah, that, so the 18 guys got, so I went out and it was me, Loco in the Raptor, Shiv met us in the 18, this was going out to Tucson. So Loco, we got, I have two wingmen, Loco has one wingman. We end up splitting right before we get, we get gas right before going into Tucson. We split, we get the airspace, we're going to do some dissimilar high aspect. Shiv comes out of DM to rejoin with us. So it's me, Shiv, and Loco. We're just we're doing two ship high aspect while one just hawks the fight and watches it. So I go to fight Shiv. We're doing a high aspect turn in, like five miles. We merge, pass, and I'm just gonna go straight up, right? I'm like, I know what your game is gonna be here. Goodbye. Well, I look over my shoulder and Shiv is going up. I'm like, well, this is, this is <laughs> gonna be interesting. So he gets like a little bit. His and they nose, start falling his off. His nose comes round, and we're like two and a half miles away, and he calls a snap. And I was like, okay, Shiv, I'll give you that, buddy. Like, you know, it's like. You don't get a kill of a snap and yeah, wait for the missile. Yeah, but he's like, ah, just, if you're in the HUD, he's going to call a kill. So yeah. we had to give, you know, let, let Shiv come on. But he, that's what he, they put a Raptor and a Viper Q 
kill decal on his demo jet. Okay. Which <laughs> then, like, photographers saw that, you know, it made, like, went across the internet, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, did A-10 kill a, a raptor and a viper? And that was way So we, I kind of bring Shiv along, like, come on, buddy, it's fine. You can hang with us. I love We Shiv. actually flew Shiv here, so I'm here actually helping uh, Kyle Fowler with uh, the Long Easy. Okay. So Kyle has this thing he likes to bring military pilots to fly in the front of, of the plane. The competition was going to be who's going to fly the plane better, you know, loco uh, with the F-22 or Shiv with with the A-10. So they put them in the front. They do looping maneuvers. And I don't know if you saw the long easy. It, it, it flies aerobatic very weird, you know, because it doesn't have a, a, a vertical stab. But Shiv, for some reason, end up ripping the entire stick out. You know, so so then the pilot in the back, he was like, I, I, I don't have a stick. And and Kyle in the back goes, what do you mean I don't have a stick? Literally, he shows him the stick. It's in the hand. That's awesome. So that's how hog drivers fly. Yeah, just like, I mean, look at that thing. It's just, it is a tank, you know, flying around, so you can just abuse it. Yeah. So you're still teaching in the Hornet? Yeah, still teaching in the Hornet. How, uh, how many guys you and gals you put through? Uh, we'll probably put through about, you know, you got to remember, our numbers are much reduced compared right, to you yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but probably about uh, 20 pilots a year. Because you have 80 or so F-18s? Uh, we're just under 100 because we got all the Australian jets coming in. Yeah, so okay. I think it's like 97 now. Okay. So, and then they just announced that we're going to get the F-35. So then 2025, that's when the transition is going to start happening for the F-35. Can. How many F-35s? 88. 88 yeah. F-35. It's that's probably what you got on one base. Well, I was, yeah, yeah. Shaw F-16 wise, we, when I showed up, we had 80. We lost a couple of, through a couple of mishaps, yeah. but. Absolutely. Different air forces, different yeah, different budgets. And you know, the, like the debate for us is, and it's funny, it's not the debate is not on the fighter pilot side, but you know the uh, the average uh, uh, Joe out there that's telling you that you need a two a two engine to do your job. And I mean, here you are, you've flown single engine for quite you know yeah. most of your career, and the F thirty five is is flying just fine. So, and there's not a a more elevated risk level or crash on the Hornet than there is, or on the Viper than there is on the Hornet. Right, and it's like the motors, the technology is so reliable these days. Yeah. Now things are going to go wrong. Now I would say having two motors and being, you know, 4,000 miles off the coast with no other runway other than the boat, having another motor probably makes sense, but, you know, predominantly if you're operating over land, yeah. with concrete available, being able to do a flame-out landing and, and get the jet back, you know, a lot of stories of guys doing that in the Viper. Um, you know, there's probably equally number of, you know, Vipers that it's not recoverable. Out, out they go, out the top, just like, you know, the Hornet. Uh, there's just some things that it's not going to make it to a runway, it's not yeah. going to make it back to the boat, and you got to get out of it. So, because Feed, good buddy, right? Hornet driver, Blue Angel. I, I jokingly asked him one day, like, how many times you've been single engine? And he's 12 times. And I was like, well, you probably should not fly the Viper. Well, do you remember the video he flew? Yes. And the, yes. the, the entire flame, somebody saw on, on video, I think it was a, a kid screaming. You see, see speed going back, and you see the fire and everything. I don't know if he uh, had, like, a bird that went through the engine. Because I was there at Vero Beach. It's, like, from a golf course. It's a great shot as he hits a turkey vulture doing like 500 knots. And yeah, it's just oh, a yeah, I'll destroy the engine. plume of smoke or you know, plume of fire going out like 60 feet, like yeah. it just trash. I was like- At low level too. Yeah, I was like, you need to be flying a twin engine aircraft. Like yeah. it's just him. That week in the blues also had, 
and yeah, they're flying the oldest Hornets in the Navy, so these things have some problems. But they're over the crowd sneak pass, like 600 bills as you go yeah. across. Starts like the 7G pool. Nose gear comes out. Nose gear comes out. Uh, the bulkhead it's attached to, yeah, yeah, obviously is structural. Bent it. That jet left on a truck to the depot. Oh wow! So. Yeah, there's just things happen sometimes that yeah. uh, you're not expecting. But for feed, him flying a twin engine. Okay, so we got to clear that debate because every time I get that question, it's like, what's better, a Hornet or a Viper? Because two very different fighters. And I well, always... we know the Viper's sexier, but <laughs> I don't know. On the ground, the Hornet's just curvy, gorgeous. But it's funny because people are always thinking, you know, I always uh, you, you see the, the the comments, you know, oh, the Viper is better than the Hornet. The Hornet's better than the Viper. And you know, like I know, it's more for the folks out there. It's right. like, it it depends. Yep. Uh, it, it's not just it depends on the pilot, but it depends on the fight. Yep. So two very different fighters. And uh, I know I, you know, I always tell Steph, uh, a good friend of ours, uh, it, it's like comparing a Jeep to a Corvette. Yep. So you're driving the Corvette, I'm driving the Jeep. So I don't want to go on the highway with you because <laughs> I know I'm going to die. But I know you sure don't want to take a Corvette into the dunes I, with me. 100%. So, I mean, that's what it is. It's like, and that's why for, for fighter pilots, it's critical to, to understand the performance of an aircraft so that when you merge, you have a quick split seconds to make a decision. Of, am I going single circle? Am I going two circle with this, uh, this uh, opponent? Obviously, nobody wants to go into single circle with, uh, with an A-10. He's gonna right. out it's over. <laughs> yeah, it's over. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it always depends on what kind of fight the Hornet will always try to go single circle on you. And if you go high, he's still going to try to point his nose the whole time at you. Right. That's why I know. It's like, I just have to survive the first Hornet pointing at me and get over the ah moment of that thing coming yeah. and just carving around. Because if I can do that, then I'm going up. I got all the energy. Now, the F-22 is a different story. Like, we don't even count it. I'm fighting loco. I'm doing my best, right? And I'm average <laughs> at best. But as I'm fighting, I'm just, again pulling out my limited bag of tricks and you're just watching him and I'm like, I, I got, I, I got nothing. You know, yeah. This, oh, no, he's just laughing, doing yeah. micro loops and so yeah, on. I'm like this, this is just not, not fair, but yeah, it depends. And the piece of it, everything has strengths and weaknesses. And really when it comes down to it, I mean, all my combat stuff, it's all coalition operations. So you're flying with Australian, Canadian Hornets, you're flying with you know, Moroccan Vipers, UAE Vipers, F-15s, F-22s, and everyone has a different tool they can bring yeah. to the fight. Everyone has a weakness that you want to compensate in mission planning when it comes to them to it. When it's mono and mono going out there to fight, we do have our different tricks that you can pull out. It's a lot of fun. I mean, well, that's what's nice when you go and do some dissimilar uh, uh, combat, then it, you get to see what the other person is doing. You go like, oh, okay, I haven't seen that. Because yeah. when you're always flying Vipers, you know the Viper tricks. Yep. You know that the Vipers are going to go two-circle. You guys like to fly at 9G <laughs> versus the Hornet. We like to pull one 7G pull, and then we hang out at 3.5G. So, but then my nose is always pointing. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I just got to get right past that nose. I get out of the Wes, right? And then, yeah. But now, you know, it's also, too, this is something to be talked about, is, you know, the fight's changing. Maybe it meets the merge, but the technology with high off-boresight weapons, assuming you do get to the merge, you got to do a visual ID before you can go fight. Like, having a high off-boresight weapon and a helmet-mounted queuing system. So shooting a 9X with a helmet-mounted queuing system, being able to look across the turn circle, yeah, queue, exactly. queue a weapon and shoot, 
it changes things. So we train, you know, we handcuff ourselves to not necessarily use all those tools every single time. Um, obviously you need know to be able to do it, but you also don't need like, what if that doesn't work? What if I've already shot it? I need to be able to get within a weapons engagement zone, which might be in the aft section of the adversary to shoot and kill them. But yeah. Yeah, it's, when we start talking lasers and space and cyber, it's a whole different world. Like, I'm going to be interested to see what happens to the fighter pilot in 20 years from now. Okay, so we're in Oshkosh and we're talking about military stuff. Yeah. So when are you going to buy your airplane? Dude, it's, that is, I know we were kind of talking beforehand. I was close pre-COVID. And I was like, yeah, yeah. COVID, ha or it's COVID was kind of kicking off. I was give it a few months and things will settle out. I think we all can attest, like the market just went insane. So I need a point A to point B plane that I can put the family in to go around the Southeast. You keep, you've stayed in the GA world. I'm jumping back into it. What do you say I get I, and why? I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to you. And, and, you know, we fly fighters and everything, but, but when you do it, they go like, you know, how is it? And, and it's fun. But while you're doing the work, you know, that it's, it's work. Yep, so there, there's not, there's rarely a time other than when we're capping, kind of looking around and you go like, wow, I got a bunch of guys on the wing and, and we're about to push down range. And you go like, this is cool. But once the work starts, there's not a lot of time in your mind that start thinking about fun. Right. Now, when you walk out of the jet, you're like, wow, we yep. just did this. That's the difference in uh, GA is you start the motor and suddenly you realize, I don't have a radar. I don't have any sort of weapons. I'm like, I do a run up and I'm ready to go in like a minute and a half. Right. Uh, so it's all fun. I, I really fell in love with aviation again after buying my airplane. Yeah. And, you know, coming to events like Oshkosh and, and, and just being able to chit chat with other pilots out there. It's, and that's what I've talked about this with Oshkosh. It's so awesome is the diversity in the aviation community when it comes to like, uh, you're flying an F-1 rocket, they got a Super Cub, this guy's flying a P-51, this one's got a TBM, whatever it might, or a Cessna 172. There's co something cool about every aspect of it. Everyone has a little story of like what they're doing with that plane because it, it's fun, it's a tool, it's a toy. There's so much, right, when it comes down to it. And it's just yeah. a good community. And, and for you, or for anybody that wants to buy an airplane out of the, the, the most difficult part is going to be find your mission. Exactly what do you want this airplane to do for you? Because like, yeah, I mean, there's a buffet of aviation out there of what you uh, can do. My rocket's a, a tandem seat. I can do aerobatics, formation. It cruises close to 200 knots and it's got amazing legs. You know, it, it goes like 900 miles. But, you know, if you have a family needs or you want to fly slow and low, you know, go with, uh, with a carbon cub or something like that. You know, the scariest part, like the one big holdback for me is not knowing the maintenance piece because that's something that, I, well, you don't have to worry about in the military, right? If you break something, yeah. it, you know. You learn quick, though. Yeah. I can tell you, you that. Write the checks, yeah. My, my, oh, I know. My wife would tell you that I didn't know the difference between a screwdriver and a hammer when I bought the airplane. But lucky for me, so I bought my airplane right after the F-18 demo. And uh, my uh, crew, ch one of the, uh, the engine tech on, on my demo team, we became really good friends. And he was an AME, so he was helping me through all my inspection. And I learned a lot through the first couple of years. And then it came to the time where he bought his airplane and then I taught him how to fly his airplane. And now we do our annuals together. That's perfect. Uh, and, but you learn quick, like quite simple airplane. Uh, it's not like, you know, the, the electronic jets that right. we have. Everything is simple, you know, rivets, 
or you know mechanical pieces but they're, they're very simple well home as we wrap up here man i always ask my guests if you found like 15 16 17 year old home walking down the street what advice would you give him yeah i would say enjoy the ride enjoy the ride and, and if one thing and I, I i know a lot of uh you know kids reach out through me on uh on instagram yeah what's um, your handle too real quick uh, at home four nine h-o-m yeah. Four nine, and uh, they're always always asking, you know, what does it, what is required for you to be a fighter pilot, and, and what would be one of the, maybe a key key point to give them, and I always, I always tell them there's never a point in my career, that I wish I had done less, I, so I always tell them to do more now, don't don't look back thinking I did too much, because there's never a point in my career that I wish I had done less. Yeah. But uh, there's many times in my career that I wish I had done more. So put the maximum effort now and try to uh, try to enjoy it right as you're doing it. Awesome. Holm, I really appreciate it, brother. Thanks for taking the time, man. Thanks, bud. Enjoyed Thanks it. Thanks for having me. So.